0: No swearing in this one. Over and out.
1: So I think we should just start with the professor. Where do you want me? Um, there, if that's okay. Would be perfect. I'm Eugene, and I'm Anna. This is Jane Harding.
0: Jane Harding, I'm a professor at the University of Auckland at the Liggins Institute.
1: Her background is in newborn medicine,
0: looking after newborn babies.
1: And there's this research she's been involved in for years and years.
0: Thinking about it for more than
1: 20 years. Involving a condition that affects some babies. A condition that can get really serious. If
0: the problem becomes severe enough, the babies can have seizures and actually have brain damage and that can cause permanent problems for development and growth and intellectual function as they grow up.
1: Some of these babies Jane is talking about have been born very small. Some are premature. Sometimes it's easy to see there's a problem. Those babies can be jittery
0: or sleepy or not feed and they can even go on to have seizures.
1: But more often, you can't even tell there's anything wrong at first just by looking.
0: They need blood tests to check that they're doing okay.
1: And if the tests show they're not doing okay...
0: Then we've found that we have a fairly simple way of treating that.
1: It's this treatment which has been a focus for Professor Harding's research team. And it all comes down to one very particular molecule that the babies need.
0: A little bit of a
1: chemical that they're missing. So what doctors do is mix that molecule into a gel. A small amount of gel. Which is then squeezed out of a syringe. Onto the midwife's finger. And applied to the baby's cheek. Yes, or sometimes the mother
0: does the rubbing in.
1: So that's inside the mouth.
0: Just inside the
1: cheek. Where the molecule
0: gets absorbed through the, the lining of the mouth.
1: Once the molecule's made it through the cheek lining, it goes on a journey.
0: Straight into the blood vessels. And then... Straight to the brain. And from there... Gets taken up by special transporters. And is then... Metabolised to provide energy for the brain.
1: So, once this magic molecule has got where it's meant to go, what happens next? We'd expect it to have a really quite prompt effect. Blood tests are taken again after about half an hour, and with any luck, the tests will show the condition is already on the mend. And even the babies who are showing those more obvious symptoms... Jittery or sleepy... Those babies...
0: They usually improve over that time as well.
1: It's basically a bit of a miracle treatment. So I asked Jane... What is this miracle treatment that prevents brain damage in these babies?
0: So we're talking about sugar. As simple as that.
1: Just sugar. I mean, it's not table sugar or castor or demerara or brown or even raw sugar. The specific sugar that's saving babies is... Glucose. It's also known as dextrose, which is almost exactly but not quite the same thing. Dextrose is just one form of glucose. So either word will do.
0: It's a very small, simple molecule, carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. Tiny, common molecule.
1: And sure, glucose, a sugar, is a kind of food. But in this situation, it sort of becomes a medicine. A medicine that's now being used around the world to combat a condition that's potentially really serious. The condition that's threatening these babies is called, logically enough, low blood sugar. It's not necessarily a problem in an adult who's getting a bit hungry, getting a bit cranky. But in a baby, low blood sugar is potentially much more serious because... There's a lot going on for a baby who's just been born. For months, they've bobbed about receiving oxygen and glucose by express delivery through the umbilical cord. But then suddenly, they have to start running their own show. So you have to sort
0: out your breathing and your heart within a few minutes after birth or you're in trouble. You have to sort out your glucose within a day or two. But some babies take longer than the few hours that we'd like to see. And it's those babies who have a
1: problem which is why Jane's team spent all that time researching the best way to fix it and settled on that glucose gel.
0: We ran a a large randomised trial and it turned out to be remarkably effective.
1: That was some years ago and nowadays neonatal units around the world are using these gels. This year, Jane and her neonatal glucose studies team won a Prime Minister's Prize in recognition of this work. The nice thing about that award is it's a team award. Jane's research is a reminder that the sugar in our blood, whether it's delivered as a baby-saving medicine or just a snack for an adult to fend off 3pm grumpiness, that sugar in our blood is a literal lifesaver, right from day one.
2: And that's what this episode is about. Sugar, that family of amazing molecules that come in many different shapes and sizes and names. Fructose. Dextrose.
3: Maltose. Sucrose. brewed Malt. Table sugar. Malt- Dextrin, sorbitol, glucose, coconut sugar. Molecules that really are the stuff
0: of life. We need a constant supply of glucose for almost all of our cells.
2: Molecules that literally save babies from brain damage. But molecules that also, with one thing and another, it's becoming a bigger, um, a bigger issue every year are actually ruining some people's lives
0: when we tell them then they're like really surprised
2: and turning out to be a kind of global
4: catastrophe new zealand and the world is going through an obesity epidemic but it's a catastrophe that is strangely
3: Moorish. Ah oh, the bubbles what's the health star rating on the front of that Tim?
2: Kau nga koutou Nau mai, hoki Greetings and welcome back to True
1: Story. I'm Eugene Bingham. And I'm Adam Dudden. Kia ora. True Story number
0: three. Sweet Airs. When you think about it, we are all very strongly programmed to like particular tastes.
1: Professor Jane Harding again.
0: And We are most strongly programmed to like sweet and salt. That's why we like chips. And
1: breast milk is very sweet. And why are we programmed to like the sweetness of breast milk, but also of maple syrup and Fanta and Krispy Kreme donuts? Well, because sweet things, sugars, convert to glucose really quickly. And glucose
0: is a fundamental energy supply for all cells. It is absolutely fundamental to life.
1: When we eat other types of molecule, fats, proteins, complex carbs, these all take a while to be transformed into glucose so our body can burn it. But a really fast way to get some glucose into your body is to eat other sugars, because those molecules are already quite close to being glucose. Take regular table sugar, which is sucrose.
0: Sucrose is a disaccharide, that is to say it's two sugars glucose and fructose and when we swallow sucrose we split it into its component sugars
1: in order to absorb it. Our bodies tell our taste buds which foods to seek out and so... So we all like sweet things. And there's the issue right there.
2: We all like sweet things and we like them a lot. So much so
4: that sugar has been shown to have similar addictive properties to substances like drugs and alcohol. This is Helen Iles. Dr Helen Isles, senior research fellow and lecturer at the University of Auckland.
2: Overdoing sugar makes sense, if you think about it in evolutionary terms.
4: We know back in time that sugar wasn't always available. Yummy fresh fruit and berries were available at certain times of the year. So our brain has been wired to eat lots of them. And then when we go through more of a fasting period, we don't eat any at all. But that doesn't really work so well in the Western food supply um, because sugar is just so highly available. So
2: instead of our prehistoric habits of gorging on berries, but only when they're available, humans are now able to behave like a 1970s rock star who's just realised they can afford to buy their favourite white powder by the swimming
1: pool full all year round. I mean, it's not exactly the same because there is a certain amount of sugar that you can eat that's actively good for you. But... The important bit is that it's just so easy to get too much of it now, and the results of having too much are not great.
3: There's a strong link between sugar intake and diet-related disease. This is Professor
1: Kleona Ni Cleona
3: Kleona Ni Professor of Population Nutrition at the University of
1: Auckland. Cleona says excessive sugar intake is double trouble. Firstly... It can cause problems directly, especially for people who like their sugar in the form of sugary drinks.
3: Research has demonstrated a strong link between consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages and outcomes like diabetes.
1: So, type 2 diabetes is a disease where the glucose in your bloodstream, your blood sugar, isn't metabolised quite as it should be, and sits in the blood instead of scooting off to where it's really needed. So, your blood ends up way more sugary than it should be, and this can cause damage to just about any part of the body you can think of. Blood vessels, nerves, your kidneys, your skin, your brain, your ears. But secondly, alongside that direct link to diabetes, Eating excessive sugar can also cause trouble indirectly.
3: If we consume diets that are high in sugar, that increases our risk of obesity, and obesity is the strongest risk factor for a diet-related disease like diabetes, and it's also a very strong risk factor for heart disease, stroke, and certain cancers as well.
1: Just to be clear, gorging on sugar isn't the only way to eat yourself sick. Basically, junk food is generally bad for you, particularly if you consume a lot of it. But... Junk food is a pretty loose term. Food scientists have a slightly more technical label.
4: Ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed
1: foods.
2: Ultra-processed foods.
4: And they're foods that have undergone several steps of industrial processing.
2: This is Helen Iles again, and she says ultra-processed foods are things like Soft
4: drinks, hot dogs, instant noodles.
2: Other examples include chips, chocolate, lollies, ice cream, chicken nuggets and those sweetened breakfast cereals that come in shapes that nature never intended. These ultra-processed foods all started out as substances we'd recognise, but they've had a pile of... Mechanical processing, chemical processing. Plus they've often had sugar and saturated fats added. As well as more exotic substances, such as
4: hydrogenated oils, emulsifiers, high fructose corn syrup.
2: Helen's favourite example of an ultra-processed food is a Pringle.
4: People might think that a Pringle was just a potato chip sliced up, but actually that potato was mushed up and we've added some flavour and emulsifiers and a whole bunch of other things, and then... squished it back out (laughs) into a a shape that looks like a Pringle and dried it out. So it really doesn't resemble the original potato. One of the things about
2: ultra-processed foods is that, well, they're designed to be yummy and they're really easy to overeat. Helen says there's some new research out of Virginia Tech in the US where 20 people were basically locked in a lab.
4: They took them to a unit where they lived for a couple of weeks.
2: They were split into two groups and depending on which group you were in, you were left to eat as much as you wanted from either Diet A, an ultra-processed diet, or if you were in the other group, you could instead graze on an all-day buffet of Diet B,
4: a diet that was made from Whole Foods.
2: You might think you can guess where this is going, but there's a twist in there. The nutritional profile of those two food offerings, Diet A and Diet B, had been carefully matched.
4: They offered the same amount of energy, protein, fibre, carbohydrate, sugar.
2: So. Theoretically, the nutrition the experimental subjects were being offered was just the same. But, yeah, your initial instinct was right. The people who grazed on ultra-processed foods gained weight over that fortnight, an average of an extra kilo compared to the other lot. And, when they then swapped the groups over, those same people lost that extra kilo on the whole food menu. Now, seeing these diets were matched, the difference wasn't about nutritional value exactly, The fundamental difference that led to the weight gain is that everyone just ate way more when they were offered ultra-processed foods, like 25% more, around 500 calories extra a day. The reasons aren't 100% clear, but it looks like it involved changes in appetite hormones such as ghrelin, which is known to
4: increase our appetite. Plus,
2: ultra-processed foods get eaten really fast.
4: They ate about 20% faster. Which is
2: basically because these foods are, well, ultra-processed
4: so they require a lot less mechanical chewing. It could be that these easy-chew
2: foods simply went down the hatch before the eater had a chance to realise they'd had enough. Plus...
4: We also have these mechanical stretch receptors in our stomachs.
2: And ultra-processed foods are often less bulky, so your brain maybe isn't getting the same feedback from those mechanical stretch receptors to tell you to stop eating.
1: Okay, I'm never gonna look at Pringles in the same way again, but what's this got to do with sugar? It was partly just a digression because that was such an interesting experiment. I couldn't
2: help wondering what it must have been like to be locked in a science laboratory with 10 other people for a fortnight and told you're only allowed to eat junk food. The mind boggles. But this research is on topic actually because ultra processed foods and the sugar that's often in them and the added sugar that's in our diets in general, they're all part of the same rather gloomy health picture. Helen put it this way.
4: New Zealand and the world is going through an obesity epidemic. Of all the countries in the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, you might be surprised to know that New Zealand is sitting about third for overweight and obesity for both adults and children, behind Mexico and the United States. So around 30% obesity. We have the evidence now and we're really confident to be able to say that sugar and ultra-processed foods are contributing significantly to our obesity epidemic.
1: Wow, third in the world. Is it weird that I feel a bit proud that New Zealand's in the leading pack? Yeah, definitely weird. Sorry, I guess it's not our proudest achievement. But of course, even if they can't keep up with New Zealand, so much of the world is grappling with this right now. Like, well, this is another digression, but I want to tell you about a trip I took recently. Shoot. So, a few months ago, I was in Fiji, in the capital, Suva doing a piece about the Fred Hollows Foundation. That's the NGO which does lots of sight-saving surgeries in developing countries. To,
4: uh, triage, and then we just the story
1: was the nothing to do with sugar. I was there to learn about cataracts and the lens replacement surgeries that the Foundation does.
0: And book for clinics.
1: But then, sugar sort of forced itself into the story. How so? Well, for a start, if you're in Fiji, sugar's kinda impossible to ignore. Sugar is one of the biggest earners for the country. There's literally a ministry of sugar. While I was there, you could even smell the sugar in the air. At least, you could smell sugar smoke, because farmers were burning off the dry leaves of the sugar canes in preparation for harvesting. Also, you would not believe the number of shops in Suva where the signage out front was really an ad for Coca-Cola. You know, big red sign above the store, with the name of the place in white block capital, so... It's so and so supermarket or whatever. And then the rest of the sign is basically a big Coke logo. But don't you get that in Aotearoa too? Like on dairies and stuff?
2: There are loads of
1: them in Auckland. Mm, I guess so. Coke probably does this all over the world. Of course, Coke's not the only soft drink company that wants to promote and sell its products. And Coke has actually made quite a bit of noise about its efforts to reduce the amount of sugar in its products. We'll get to that later. But all the same... I don't think I've ever seen so many of these ads in one place. It was like every third or fourth shop had that shiny red signage. Not just dairies, but restaurants, supermarkets, takeaways, even a couple of car wash places. I got mildly obsessed with them and started taking photos. They really stood out because most other shop signage was a bit tired and faded, but the Coke branded signs were bright and shiny, as red as Santa Claus's trousers. Very curious point of reference there, Adam, but sure, Santa does have very red trousers. I suppose it's just a really cost-effective way for Coke to get their branding in everyone's faces. But given what I was seeing up at the Eye Hospital each day, I found it kind of confronting. What were you seeing up at the Eye Hospital? Well, the surgeons at the Pacific Eye Institute and the Fred Hollows people that support them told me the usual stuff about the Foundation's mission to reduce blindness in developing countries. But they also told me that they're now being forced to change course. For decades, they've been combating blindness by supporting cataract surgeries. That's where you remove a cloudy lens and put in a plastic one to replace it. Really common operation, happens all over the world, it's just that the Fred Hollows Foundation makes it accessible to people who'd have struggled to afford it. But they're now getting really worried about blindness from something other than cataracts, and that something? Diabetes. Remember how I said that diabetes affects blood vessels? Well, when it damages the blood vessels at the back of the eye, you can get a condition called diabetic retinopathy, which causes blindness. Worst of all, this kind of blindness isn't easily reversible in the way that cataract blindness is reversible.
2: Every year, more and more people
1: have diabetes. This is Joe Dowling from the Foundation.
2: You can halt the damage if you catch it, but once they're blind, they're blind. It's irreversible. And it is becoming a bigger and bigger issue with younger and younger people.
1: Sorry about the dodgy recording. I hadn't realised I'd want to use this interview in a podcast episode about sugar till I got home. But anyway. So what's causing all this diabetes in Fiji? Well, the usual suspects, I'm afraid. Sugars, processed foods. One of the patients who I followed through cataract surgery was Kamala. Besides the cataracts, her sight has also been quite badly damaged by her diabetes. She told me how she had already been advised to eat lots of salad and to avoid sugary drinks because those things would make her diabetes worse. There was also this surgeon I talked to, Dr. Amanda Kumar, who... First of all, is a dab hand with a scalpel. The first time I saw her, she was slicing into somebody's cornea on an operating table. But second of all, Amanda said, yeah, it's kind of depressing meeting patients who are losing their sight to diabetes.
0: Most patients, they really do not understand that diabetes can also affect their eyes. So when we tell them, then they're like really surprised and then they try and um, control their sugars and
1: stuff. They try to control their sugars and stuff. Because once you've become diabetic, it becomes really important to get really strict about your sugar intake. But here's the thing, Amanda said that even after someone with diabetes has learned that drinking more sugary drinks could literally make them go blind, people really struggle to act on that. I asked Amanda if anyone close to her had diabetes, and she said, yeah.
3: Yes, my dad has diabetes.
1: I
0: saw... From personal experience, I can tell that even if I try to educate him, he doesn't listen to me, so I don't
1: know. It's kind of gobsmacking that you can know what the problem is and even get some expert advice from your daughter, who's literally a doctor, about how to manage that problem. But it's still not enough to make you stop pouring sugar into your body. Yeah, extraordinary, eh? And if you think about it,
2: that's Fiji, but New Zealand's third in the world in the obesity rankings, so the same sort of
1: thing must be happening here too. So how did this happen? How could something that's utterly essential for life and which is used to save babies in NICU units turn to the dark side and start making so many people sick? And what on earth can we do about it? That's coming out.
3: If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead... The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, Subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Oh, that is a good noise. That's the good stuff,
0: man. Ah, bubbles. It's bubbly and it's incredibly sugary. For me, it hits the back of my throat in a little orange taste sensation. I don't know if it's just the orangeness, but it, it does sort of taste a little bit healthy even though it's absolutely loaded
2: with sugar.
3: <sighs> <laughs> oh, that tastes and smells just like summer.
1: Thanks to our colleagues Kate, Sarah and Bex for their real-time responses upon drinking a can or bottle of their choice of their favorite sweetened fizzy beverage, which were respectively
3: the classic Coke. It's Fanta. It's absolutely fantastic. And a beautiful bottle of LMP.
1: As our consumer panel observed, sugar and the things you can make with sugar are spectacularly pleasant to consume. And sugar's always been tasty, ever since we were babies. Breast milk was very sweet. Ever since we were apes living on the savannah.
4: Our brain is wired to eat more sugar when it's in abundance.
1: But runaway rates of obesity and diabetes are really modern problems. So how did the magic molecule that is literally the stuff of life, how did it turn to the dark side? Dr. Helen Isles says you
2: can just about pick the moment that everything started to change. It was soon after the Second World War as food shortages and rationing started to lift all around the world. Food production and society in general were going through big changes.
4: We went from a period of scarcity of food
3: the tussle with ration books, tokens and stamps. to
4: Supplies having more food around again.
2: Food production and society in general were going through big changes.
4: Women were moving into work and weren't spending their days at home cooking as they might have been in the past. We started to see more and more of these convenience foods. The food industry, they realised how profitable these types of foods were and sugar is cheap. It's safe from a food safety perspective. So it's a great ingredient in terms of making money as well.
2: And there's also the curious tale of saturated fats and how some early attempts to make processed foods healthier backfired a bit. So from the 1950s on, researchers found a link between high saturated fat consumption and heart disease. So the advice to the public was, cut back on eating fat.
4: In response to that, food industry started removing saturated fat from processed foods. Which sounds logical, but
2: there was a fishhook. Saturated fats make processed foods taste great and removing them made things taste a bit bland. Food processes pivoted, they added more sugar instead because A, it tastes awesome, and B.
4: At that time, we didn't really understand that relationship between sugar and obesity in the same way that we do now.
1: Actually, some researchers did suspect that eating too much sugar was a problem even back then, but their voices weren't cutting through. It later came out that from the 1960s on, the sugar industry's Sugar Research Foundation was tilting the playing field. They were quietly funding diet research that downplayed the health risks of sugar. People had suspected this for ages, then in 2016, A pile of internal sugar industry documents were uncovered and they showed that the sugar industry had played a big part in shaping official dietary recommendations in the US and thus around the world.
4: Okay, history's history.
2: But what really matters is where we're up to now, right? And now?
4: We have the evidence that sugar and ultra-processed foods are contributing significantly to our obesity epidemic. So easy.
2: Now we all know this. Everyone's just going to stop putting sugar in everything
1: and we're going to stop overeating sugar, right? Right? Uh, no. That's just not how it works. Someone who does know how it works is Professor Kleona Nimiruku, who we met in the first half. In case it's helpful, a prop of some Tim Tams, because I thought... When we went to interview Kleona, we took along some biscuits. But the doctor didn't want to bite, so to speak. Um,
3: What's the the health star rating on the front of that, Tim Tam?
1: Is there a rating? Oh, 0.5. Is that good?
3: No, that's not good. That's the (laughs) lowest you can get. (laughs) So that tells you
1: something. As well as being a professor of nutrition, Cleona is an expert advisor to Food Standards Australia New Zealand.
3: I'm a Food Standards Australia New Zealand fellow.
1: And that's the body that guides government policy around food standards in both countries. Cleona's work for them has involved some deep dives into food nutrition labelling. So, you know, there's that little list on the back of your yoghurt or whatever that tells you the amount of protein and carbs and fat and sugar. But food labelling also includes other information or warnings, like that 0.5 health star rating on the packet of Tim Tams. And Cleona told us about how fiendishly complicated this stuff can get. Before we get into that, though, a tiny bit of background. We've been talking a bit about added sugar. And it's worth being really clear on exactly what that means. So, Kiona
3: Natural sugars are the kind of sugars that naturally occur in fruit and vegetables and dairy products. And then there's the added sugars, the sugars that get added to our foods, particularly our packaged foods. The distinction arises because we know it's the added sugars that particularly impact adversely on our health.
1: This is because for natural sugars, the ones you'll find inside that vegetable or that piece of cheese,
3: the sugar is, is in a Complex matrix
1: alongside protein and fiber or whatever, which slows the absorption of the sugar into our blood. But with added sugars, say the extra sugar in a sweetened yogurt or the sugar in a tim tam, that's a bit different. Those sugar molecules are way more accessible, so it gets into our bloodstream far faster and increases our blood glucose much faster. Got that? Natural sugars, relatively okay. Added sugars, definitely much less okay. The World Health Organization did a huge research review and concluded that added sugars should be less than 10% of your calorie intake. And for optimal health benefits, actually less than 5%.
3: In practical terms, that means only about six teaspoons of added sugars a day, which is about 25 grams. But in the real world... We're probably mostly looking at people consuming at least double that.
1: All this suggests it'd be a good thing if we could get below that magic number of six teaspoons a day of added sugar. A quick point of reference for you, there's seven teaspoons of sugar in a can of classic Coke. Okay, no one said it was going to be easy. But anyway, that WHO advice brings us to Cleona's work with Food Safety Australia New Zealand. After that advice came out, six teaspoons, yada yada yada, New Zealand's official dietary guidelines were updated to match.
3: Our dietary guidelines now state that we should be limiting added sugars. This was about five years ago. Back in 2017. And around the same time. That's when Food Standards Australia New Zealand started looking at how sugars are labeled on
1: packaged products. Fiona says it was quite the process. Public consultation, if
3: we were with a policy nice paper on, on the land to, lane to lane take sugars. a review of added sugar labels.
1: They looked around the world to see how other countries were labelling sugars.
3: And they focused particularly on three options that came through. One option was to list added sugars on the nutrition information panel. Another option was a pictorial label. Illustrating the sugar content of a product using teaspoons of sugar. So you can imagine.
1: And the third option was to clarify which ingredients were actually added sugars, hiding behind obscure or even healthy sounding names.
3: Brutose, maltose, sorbitol, maltodextrins, brewed malt, coconut sugar. Infinite numbers of terms to, be used for this review process and went on, started in 2019, and on, in 2020, and on, review in 2021, and on. In 2022, there was a decision made um, to develop a proposal to consider amending the food standards Code to good. So we're five years down the track, and what we have
1: is a proposal. Cleona says the final outcome is probably going to be an extra line on that nutritional panel on the back of food packets, which will specify how much of the sugar in a product is added sugar. So on a sweetened yogurt, say, you'd know how much sugar was naturally from the milk it's made from and how much was added for extra sweetness or for the pack of biscuits Cleona was holding.
3: If we look at the back of this pack of of Tim Tams in this very, very tiny writing that I'm actually struggling to read, you can see that there are seven nutrients that are mandated at the moment on, on the nutrition information panel. So there will be another subgroup under total sugars that under this new proposal would read added sugars.
1: I mean, they're not quite there yet, but this sounds like a result years of work for a labelling change that will, well, actually, I wondered how much difference it would make. So I asked Cleona. So I don't want to be rude, and I know this is your life's work, but so let's say this happens and that extra line of three-point writing on the back of the Tim Tams appears. What impact is it going to have on public health?
3: Well, that's an interesting question. Most people think about nutrition labels as maybe changing the choices we all make as consumers in terms of a choice to buy a healthier product. But? All of the research suggests that the impact on consumer behaviour of nutrition labels is minimal to none. What? Minimal to none. That
2: does seem odd that they'd have so little effect. I mean, I see people squinting at the back of food labels in supermarkets all the time. I've been known to do it myself. Surely it's
1: affecting buying choices somehow. Well, Cleona says studies show it's never more than about 15% of people, a small, very motivated subgroup, who are reacting to those labels. Most people though, if we look at our population as a whole, just don't. Those labels with all that useful information about saturated fats and sugars, they really have very
3: minimal impact in terms of what consumers are choosing or buying. There are all kinds of considerations that are going on in shoppers heads that are not just about health. They're about cost, they're about taste, they're about will my family eat this.
1: Cleona says consumers ignoring nutrition labels isn't quite as dispiriting as it might sound because that labeling has some other big benefits and we'll get to those. But big picture, Cleona says there's generally a big disconnect between knowing something's unhealthy and actually acting on it. In fact, This insight has sort of shaped her whole career. She started off as a dietitian, Working one-on-one with people. But she became increasingly disheartened. At how hard it was for individuals to make healthier choices. And these were people who were fully aware of what was healthy and what wasn't. That's when she changed direction and started working in public health, which seemed to take a broader view about how food and people interact. Fiona says many of the knee-jerk assumptions about how to combat bad nutrition, about how to fight the obesity epidemic, really aren't much CHOP, such as education. Education? We've sort of already covered that when talking about diabetes in Fiji, and also around labelling, there's that disconnect between knowing and doing.
3: Education doesn't work because of that disconnect, but also because people are being bombarded with messages to buy and consume
1: these foods. What else doesn't work? Voluntary industry policies or initiatives don't work. That's where food producers offer to use voluntary health star labelling, say, as a way to convince the government they don't need to be forced to follow actual regulations. But...
3: Voluntary industry initiatives tend to be things that industry can achieve very easily, they're
1: going to do anyway, and they themselves are pretty confident that they're
3: not going to impact on their sales.
1: Then there's the popular strategy of being nasty to the people who are actually falling victim to the obesity epidemic.
3: Stigmatising people doesn't work. It just creates a deep sense of shame over something that I think we're all aware of is not just the fault of the individual. It's, It's being driven by much wider things. It's not a crisis of weak willpower. So fat shaming doesn't work.
1: All right, so what? does work, what would get us back below six teaspoons a day? Both Cleona and Helen say we need to learn from history. Look at what worked for that even more famous health menace, tobacco.
4: We can reformulate, which means we can work with food companies to take some of the sugar out of those packaged foods. If you restrict
3: advertising, it limits demand. We can make foods that are high in sugar more expensive than those that are not. Raising the price of the product definitely has an inhibitory effect on
1: purchasing behaviour. Those last two basically mean taxes. And if you think about what's worked with tobacco, there are even sterner measures available. Tobacco is
3: banned in certain settings. We we should certainly be looking at, why are we allowing these unhealthy foods in schools?
1: What this all adds up to, essentially, is zooming out from the individual level of guilt-tripping people for eating stuff they know is bad for them to a society-wide level, where you're thinking about the food environment instead.
4: We know, in terms of biggest bang for our buck, those environmental changes to the food environment have the biggest impacts.
2: Helen knows this because some countries are already doing things like whacking taxes onto soft drinks. Soft drinks are an especially good target because, as Helen puts it,
4: Soft drinks are the
2: closest thing we have to cigarettes. By which she means their unhealthiness is really straightforward. Many other foods have some nutritional value. They just become a problem when you have too much. But with sugar-sweetened beverages?
4: They don't offer anything from a nutritional perspective. We don't need them in our diet, so they are quite an easy thing to tax and they're also really easy to categorise.
2: No surprise then, that sugar-sweetened drinks are one area where some governments are starting to impose taxes. And they're having an impact.
4: There's some new research that's just come out of Mexico where they've had a sugar-sweetened soft drink tax in place since
2: 2014. That
4: was a 10% tax on soft drink and... It finally does seem to be showing that it's having an impact on young girls' weight.
2: The UK brought in a soft drink tax in 2018 and again, the research shows it's had an impact
4: it was reducing the amount of sugar purchased from soft drinks by about 30%, about four and a half grams per person per day, almost a teaspoon of sugar, which is huge for a public health intervention.
2: So once more, here's something that seems to work. I guess everyone's just gonna jump on board and join Mexico and the UK and wage war on sugary drinks.
1: Mm, again, not exactly, in fact, For a minute there, the UK's new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, was threatening to scrap their soft drink tax. But now that her tenure has been outlasted by the shelf life of lettuce, that seems to be up in the air for now. But yeah, this highly effective, validated intervention was almost gone by lunchtime. I
4: think it's around that libertarian perspective and not wanting to make consumers' choices for them.
1: And in New Zealand, that kind of tax isn't even looking close. That's partly because there's a legitimate reluctance to mess with our flat-rate GST system. Apparently it'll work less efficiently if we start slapping different tax rates on different goods. But the biggest reason for the slow pace of change, according to Kleona, is more about lobbying by the food industry and political cowardice. Who wants to be the politician who launched a new tax, or who made it hard for people to get their hands on yummy, yummy soft drinks that taste like summer, and make you go...
3: Their priority is to be re-elected. They're never very keen to do things that are unpalatable to the voter. But it's also about keeping industry on side. Industry put huge amounts of funding into lobbying government against regulation in particular or anything that's likely to impact on their sales or profits. And it's really, really difficult for public health to compete with that.
2: It blows my mind that there are experts like Helen or Cleona, these experts who can demonstrate that certain things don't work, like fat shaming and education campaigns, but who can rattle off other things that they know will work, but which don't seem to get across the line. Soft drink taxes, getting junk food out of schools and hospitals, banning junk food advertising,
1: especially when it's aimed at children. And nothing seems to change. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a bitter old journalist, but back in 2012, I did a story for the Sunday Star Times about all this stuff. Food labelling, added sugar, super sweet breakfast cereals aimed at kids, rising obesity, foot dragging by manufacturers, political cowardice, industry lobbying, all of it. I even bought a box of choco flavoured cereal for my kids to pose up for a photo and they just about lost their minds eating something that appeared to be almost entirely sugar and cocoa. The things you will do for a story. What a terrible parent. They survived. But look, I even interviewed doctors Helen Isles and Cleona Muraku back then, and a whole decade later, just about everything they're telling me is much the same, especially in New Zealand. A decade on, there's more evidence that added sugar and ultra-processed foods are a problem. There's more evidence that environmental interventions are the best solutions, rather than focusing on so-called willpower and shame. I mean, even Coca-Cola has started to talk about the steps it's taking to reduce the amount of sugar in its products in Aotearoa. It says it's on track to reduce sugar by 20% across its portfolio by 2025, and it's pushing more of its no-sugar options in its advertising. Coca-Cola also says in primary and intermediate schools it will only sell water, and is committed to ensuring those under 14 are not directly targeted by its advertising or promotions. But, big picture, it feels like a lot of what Helen and Cleona told me back then still holds. Well, that's depressing. Sorry. Let's see if we can't wrap up with a couple of notes of optimism there. Yes, please. Okay. Reasons to be cheerful, number one. Remember how I kind of implied... That Cleona's lifelong mission to get more informative labelling onto food packaging had been a waste of time. Yeah, that was a bit rude. Well, actually, it hasn't been a waste of time because while consumers mostly ignore labels, manufacturers don't. They really hate having to plaster their products with health warnings, so they quite often preemptively improve their recipes in response.
3: Industry definitely modifies their manufacturing processes to get better labelling, and that's actually a good thing for, for our health. Okay, good to know.
1: And reasons to be cheerful number two, though I'll accept this one as a bit of a mixed bag. Try me. Well, remember that Helen compared sugary drinks to cigarettes.
4: Soft drinks are the closest thing we have to
1: cigarettes. Yeah. And Cleona said there's a lot to learn from the history of tobacco when thinking about the future of sugar and ultra-processed foods.
3: Tobacco is banned in certain settings.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things about tobacco is that we are now really getting there, but it took A solid half century, from the initial research showing smoking caused cancer, till governments really got stuck in to taxing, regulating and generally squeezing smoking out of our lives. So we're a long way from there with the likes of sugar and ultra-processed foods. Plus it's tricky because, you know, we've all got to eat. But at least the alarm bell on sugar has been rung. Here's a final word from Helen.
4: I think we're starting to see, at least in some countries, some positive changes, particularly around the soft drink taxes. I think 50 years ago, that might have seemed something that we would never do. Change is
1: coming, says Helen, even if it's terribly slow.
4: We're making progress.
1: And the only thing to do is keep pushing for more change.
4: Because there's a lot more that we can do. Got any other True Stories?
1: I
0: admire his qualities of essentially a slippery eel personified. <laughs> <laughs> he always had a way out.
2: That's next time. True Story is written and hosted by Adam Dudding and me, Eugene Baum. Our producer is Jen Black, Our executive producer is Chris Reid. Mixing by Connor Scott. Music by Audio Network and Blue Dot Sessions. Graphics by Catherine George. Thanks also to Daniel Fraser, Laura Heathcote, Nadia Tollich, Jen O'Halloran, Janine Fennick, Joanna Norris, and Mark Stevens.
0: If you have a true story or want to get in touch with us, you can email truestory at stuff.co.nz. That's truestory at stuff.co.nz.
3: Got it? Ka kite.
0: Hey Chris. Yes? Do you want another very broad question? I've got a very broad question Go today. on then. What do you know about sports? Up oh, the wires, go the Black Caps, and don't forget Premier League football. Oh, you do love a bit of Premier League footy, do. don't you? What team is it that you're supporting? Oh, the current champions, Manchester City. I think they're pronounced Arsenal. It's pronounced Arsenal. Uh, but you know what's good about football? It what? They don't regulate soccer height. I'm sorry, there's a sport that regulates sock height? Indeed there is, and it's cycling. That's very strange. Why on earth do they regulate it? Well I know, but if you want to find out, you'll have to listen to The Big Stuff Quiz, wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, that's a cliffhanger indeed. The Big Stuff Quiz is brought to you by Melbourne every bit different.